Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. Uh, next week we are going to be starting a new sermon series. It's uh, our annual Q&A series. Actually, it's been more than a year since we've done this last time. But uh, next Sunday we will begin taking a Sunday, each Sunday in March, to answer from the pulpit the questions that have been submitted uh, over the last six weeks. Thanks to all of you who submitted very, very good questions. It was very hard to make a decision as to which ones to answer, but we did come down to four that um, I'm going to seek by God's grace to answer from the Scriptures. If your question did not get chosen and you are really wanting to discuss it or try to get an answer to it, please uh, email me, contact me, let's get together, let's talk about it. We can do it by email or over coffee or whatever. Uh, we don't want you to feel that your questions are being overlooked. But one of the reasons we do this is because we do want to cultivate an atmosphere here at New Life where questions are welcome. Uh, we want to join with each other in exploring what the Scriptures teach, and so we always want this to be a safe place to ask questions. And that's one of the reasons that we do this sermon series. It's also good just to know what you all are wrestling with and questioning and so, here are the questions that will be before us over the next four Sundays. Next Sunday, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? On March 15th, <clears throat> why are Christians called to sing in worship? March 22nd, how should the church care for those struggling with mental illness? And then on March 29th, what happens to people who have never heard the gospel? The mother of all questions. <laughs> Uh, so please pray for me as I look at the scriptures and seek to answer these, and I hope you'll come back and hear those. But the fact that that is starting next Sunday means this Sunday we're actually concluding a sermon series. We're concluding the series on 1 Peter, which actually started back in June, uh, which was a little farther back than I thought. It's taken us a while to get through this. Part of the reason is because we've had so many tangents and um, other sermon series going on during that time. But here we are concluding our series on the book of 1 Peter, and God willing, we'll start a study of the book of Romans after the Easter holidays, uh, holiday in April. <clears throat> so 1 Peter 5 is our text, verses 6 through 14, finishing the book. It might be said of some of you, and you might consider it a great compliment, that you don't have an enemy in the world. Sometimes we'll say that about people. We, we mean that as a compliment. You know, that, that person is so well-liked, is so cherished, has so many good relationships, that person doesn't have an enemy in the world. And that's a good thing to have said about you, I think. But um, if you're a Christian, do you know that that actually cannot be said of you? Because you do have an enemy in this world. And in fact, that enemy is named Satan, or the devil, and the name of the sermon this morning is, The Devil Hates You and Has a Horrible Plan for Your Life. Now, I, I hear some snickers. I didn't know if that would get some laughs. I, I, I hope you know that I didn't title the sermon this way 
to get laughs. I, I, I really didn't. I mean, this is, this is the truth, and it's something that all of us as Christians should be aware of. The devil hates you and has a horrible plan for your life. Why is it that the devil hates you? Well, it's because the devil wants to blind you, but as a Christian, you, you now see. The devil wants to accuse you, as Pastor Brian pointed out to us. He wants to heap upon you guilt and shame, but in Jesus you are forgiven and you've been freely and totally and completely pardoned. Satan um, wants to bring death into your life, but you, Christian, united to Jesus by faith, are alive and will live forever. You used to belong to Satan. He used to be your master. He used to be your boss, but not anymore. Jesus is your master. In other words, by the grace of God, you have been transferred from Satan's kingdom into Jesus' kingdom, and Satan is very upset about that. That enrages him, and he hates not only you, but the Savior who has saved you. And that's what we hear about here in 1 Peter 5, as this passage, or as this book ends, this letter ends. And so, uh, let's read this. If you have that, please stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word. We'll read 1 Peter 5, 6 through the end of the letter. First Peter 5, starting with verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. God in heaven, please open our eyes and soften our hearts and give us faith and understanding and prepare us, Lord, to resist all the attempts of Satan to destroy us. Do that now through this sermon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not going to be spending much time here this morning in verses 12 through 14. This is kind of a routine conclusion, ending um, to the letter. Peter mentions this uh, person named Silvanus. That's actually Silas. You might know him better by the name Silas, who was mentioned in the book of Acts, joining with the missionary journeys of Paul. And uh, also verse 13, kind of interesting, Peter here makes a mention of Mark. <clears throat> Mark, my son, and Mark is the one who wrote the gospel of Mark. Sometimes people ask, how can Mark know so much about the life of Jesus when Mark wasn't intimately connected to Jesus? Well, we get a clue for that right here. It looks like Mark had a good relationship with Peter, so probably a lot of what Mark wrote in his gospel, he learned from Peter. So, 
Remember, this is not a book, really. This is a letter that Peter has written. And so this letter concludes uh, with some exhortations and greetings. So we're going to focus mostly here on verses 6 through 11. And uh, the first thing that I want to try to show you from this passage is that the devil is real. The devil is real. The devil exists. So let me try to show this to you by beginning in verses 6 and 7, and you might be thinking, you know, why are we talking about humility when this sermon is about the devil? Well, I'll get to that. Hang on. Here's how the passage starts. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Now, Before we get to the issue of Satan, I think there's another question we have to explore here. What is the connection between humbling ourselves and anxiety? What Peter seems to be saying here is that one of the ways that you can humble yourself, verse 6, is by, verse 7, casting your anxieties on God. A way of showing humility is by letting go of your anxiety. So the implication there is that if you are a person who is overwhelmed and burdened with many anxieties, one of the reasons that might be is because you have a pride problem. Now, I'm a person who struggles with anxiety, so uh, this is very convicting to me, but there seems to be a connection here. Peter is saying, humble yourselves. One of the ways you can do that is by letting go of your anxieties. Now, if we think about this, it actually makes better sense to me. Because what is it that causes us to be so anxious? Isn't it a preoccupation with ourselves? I mean, isn't that largely where anxiety comes from? We're just so worried, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my reputation? What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to my children? What's going to happen to my comfort level? How much money am I going to have when I retire? It's it's based on so many concerns that are consumed with ourselves. Remember, humility, friends, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Do you see the difference? Not thinking less of yourself, like I'm a miserable, horrible, nasty person. I have nothing to offer. I'm so awful. That's, that doesn't spring from humility. Humility is, I just don't really think of myself that much. Humility is connected to self-forgetfulness. That's really humility. And what Peter is saying here is there is a connection between our anxiety and our pride. And then he goes on here in verse 7, and he says, well, here's what you should do in response to that. Casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Now, I think this can be connected to pride issues a little bit also. Isn't it true that one of the reasons why we often get anxious is because we feel like nobody cares for us? Nobody's looking out for us. 
We feel like we're alone in the universe. We feel like we're alone in whatever it is that we are fighting or dealing with. We feel like everything's out of control. And we think, if this is going to get done right, if this is going to get fixed, if I'm going to make any progress in this situation, I've got to do it. Nobody else cares. My spouse doesn't care. My parents don't care. My boss doesn't care. The government doesn't care. Nobody cares. And so I have got to do this myself. And what Peter is saying is there is somebody who cares. And it's God. He cares about your anxieties. He cares about your concerns. He cares about you. You don't have to fix it yourself. It isn't up to you ultimately. It is up to God. And I think, again, there's just some little bit of pride in there in us just wanting to control everything. We want to be the ones who work it all out. And this is a challenge to us. You know, there are some things you can't work out. There are some things you have just got to give to God and you've got to trust Him to work it out. So what does all this have to do with the devil? (laughs) Well, Peter's the one who moves from this discussion of humility and anxiety and in verse 8, Starts talking about the devil. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil. Humble yourselves, don't be anxious, watch the devil. I mean, doesn't that seem kind of like a non sequitur? Why does he move from anxiety and humility issues into this discussion of the devil? And I think it could be because there is a connection between our pride and our willingness to accept that the devil is real. That for some of us, we we just cannot, in this modern enlightened world, accept the fact that there is a personification of evil, a real person named the devil. C.S. Lewis, in his book Screwtape Letters, which probably many of you have written, I understand there's a movie that's going to be made about Screwtape Letters coming up sometime. And uh, Screwtape Letters is all about the way the mind of Satan and his demons work. And Lewis says there's two uh, potential errors when it comes to Satan and demons. One is to be um, excessively interested in them. And sometimes Christians are, are that way, just always thinking about evil forces, looking for a demon under every rock, attributing everything in his or her life to Satan. And there, there is a possibility of being too interested in the devil. But Lewis says the other error is to be not interested at all. And in fact, to just disbelieve that demons exist, to just dismiss any notion of a spirit world um, where evil forces are at work. And he goes on to say that the devils are delighted with either of those errors, quite frankly. Uh, become obsessed about them, or act like they don't exist, and you're right where Satan wants you. But it it is true, isn't it, that in this day and age, it's it's hard for some people to accept the existence of a devil. Barna did a poll in 2011 and found that 90% of Americans believe in God, 43% believe in a devil. You know, I would expect an atheist not to believe in a devil, but I would expect people who believe in God to also believe in the devil. But apparently half the people who believe in God do not believe in the devil. The Church of England just last year 
removed from its liturgy all references to the devil because they want to be more accessible to the current generation. They don't want there to be any misunderstandings among young people in particular. So the word devil, the reference to the devil, has been removed. And, you know, let's just acknowledge it. As we look throughout culture, it, it seems that the devil is very often to, made to just look kind of silly. You know, I mean, when you think of the popular conception of the devil, what is it? It's this guy in a red suit with horns coming out of his head and a long tail and a pitchfork. And he doesn't look very dangerous. We sometimes dress up our children in cute little demon costumes at Halloween. We have sports mascots like the Duke Blue Devils. Um, some of you remember the church lady from Saturday Night Live, Dana Carvey, from uh, 20 or so years ago, playing this kind of overreacting, really old-fashioned, prudish church lady who attributes everything to Satan. And every time she mentions Satan, it just, you know, roars of laughter from the crowd. All of these are just ways in which the devil is presented to us as somebody kind of silly. And uh, Lewis actually mentions this, again, in the Screwtape Letters. This is in 1960. <clears throat> and the Screwtape Letters, you'll have to listen if you're going to get this quote, because the Screwtape Letters is, it, it's... It's, uh, it's written from one demon to another. So Screwtape is like a, um, a senior demon who is speaking to a junior demon called Wormwood and giving him instructions. Here's how you can destroy people. You know, here's how you can really wreak havoc among Christians. So he's giving him advice here in this quote. And he says, the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you if any faint suspicion of your existence as a demon begins to arise in his mind, the mind of a Christian, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Friends, as you look at these examples, are you a person who thinks you're too smart to believe in a devil. I would say if that's you, you're in a dangerous place. Here's what a guy named Clinton Arnold said, commentator, there's a distinct danger for Western Christians to discount or minimize the reality of supernatural opponents. To do so makes us more vulnerable to their attacks. Do you notice what Peter says here, how he refers to the devil in verse 8? He is your adversary. He is against you. He hates you and has a horrible plan for your life. And what he would be most delighted to do is to convince you that he doesn't exist. What better way to disarm you against all of his attempts to destroy you but to get you to think he's not there? And the Bible says over and over again, this is the way Satan works. Look at John 8, 14. Here's Jesus speaking. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Here's 2 Corinthians 
Chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants, his demons, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Sometimes demons come to us as upstanding religious people. Here's, here's what the Bible seems to be saying. If, if the devil really does exist as as the Bible describes him as a liar and one whose most formidable tool is falsehood and deceit, then wouldn't it follow that there'd be many people who wouldn't believe in him? If the devil as described in the Bible exists, it's very likely that we would be greatly tempted to disbelieve him. But here's Peter, and he is saying that there is a devil, and he is your adversary. And he has a horrible plan for your life. Well, the second point here is that the devil is not only real, but the devil is on attack. He is on attack. Verse 8 tells us what the devil is doing. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter's drawing a comparison between the devil and a lion. What is a lion like? You've seen those National Geographic shows probably, or you can go on YouTube and see a number of examples of how a lion approaches its prey. A lion is patient. The lion observes very carefully. The lion kind of remains hidden. The lion is very careful. The lion watches very closely, and what he's looking for are places in your life where you're inattentive, where you're not spiritually alert, where you're distracted. That's what a lion does very often, right? Looks, waits for the, his prey to go down to the river and get a drink, or eating some bark off a tree or something, or or when the animal is injured and can't get up, or when the animal has been separated from the herd. These are all things that the lion is doing, seeking, stalking its prey. And what Peter is saying is that that is what Satan is doing. He's watching and looking for opportunities to devour you when you're inattentive, when you're not paying attention, when you're separated from God's people, when you're wounded in some way, that's when Satan sneaks in and seeks to devour. So how does this happen? There's a number of examples throughout the New Testament of how Satan actually does this. Um, you know, there might be a temptation for some of us to think that, you know, maybe Satan sent this snowstorm today. Uh, because this is Satan's way of making sure people don't come and don't hear the gospel. But, I, you know, I'm not so sure that's the way Satan works. Satan, friends, is not in control of snowstorms. Uh, God is. The Bible attributes to God control over all weather events, not Satan. So I don't think Satan sent this snowstorm. I think it's beautiful, actually, so, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for it. I, I see it as showing the glory of God to some 
extent. I know a lot of you can't identify with that, but that, that's the way I look at it. But I don't think it's coming from Satan, but there are ways that Satan prowls and seeks to attack. And we can look to the rest of the New Testament, see some examples. How about with regard to anger? I know Pastor Brian gave a great sermon on anger here recently. <clears throat> Here's what it says in Ephesians 4. Was this your text? By the way, it was. So I haven't heard your message yet, so maybe I'm repeating what you're saying, or maybe I'm contradicting what you're saying. I hope not. But here's what Paul says. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. When you're in an agitated state of anger, what Paul seems to suggest is this is an opening for this Satan, devil, who prowls around looking to devour you. Uh, how about pride? This is a description in 1 Timothy 3, warnings to one who wants to become an elder. He says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. When pride starts springing up in our heart, oh, the devil loves that and can sweep in and do all kinds of creative damage with that. Sexual sin, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaking to married couples, he says, do not deprive one another sexually, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. You know, he's saying, be sexually active so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So when couples start drifting from one another physically, it seems that that opens up a door for Satan to do damage. Um, neglect of the Bible. Here, Jesus is speaking in Matthew 13. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So you're reading the Bible. Maybe you're a new Christian and you're seeing things you don't quite understand. You're perplexed. And so you say, I don't understand this. I'm giving up. I'm not going to read my Bible and I'm not going to church. That's exactly what Satan wants. He's taking whatever has been sown in your heart and he's seeking to snatch it away. False doctrine, another example, 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. False doctrine, a way that Satan seeks to devour. Now let me clarify something here. Um, you know, if you have sinned in these ways, uh, be careful that you don't fall into the temptation to want to blame it all on Satan. You know, the devil made me do it. Uh, sometimes people avoid responsibility for their actions by blaming it on Satan. The Bible won't let you do that. James 1 says anyone who's tempted is enticed by his own desires, and those desires give birth to sin, which lead to death. So our sin is our fault, not Satan's fault. But nonetheless, Satan is on the prowl looking for opportunities to take these openings and lead you further down the path of destruction and transgression against God. So what should you do in response to this? Well, a couple of things Peter says very clearly in um, verse 8. Be sober-minded, therefore. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring roaring lion. So be alert. Pay attention. You know how you're driving down the interstate and then you get to the construction area and you see the orange cones and 
You see the signs that say reduce speed limit, and you see the workers on the side of the road. What do you always do? You slow down. You, you start tightening up a little bit. You, you start paying attention, don't you? I mean, you're not texting when you're going through a construction area. You're not rooting around on the floor for a CD when you're going through a construction area. You're paying attention. You're being watchful. And that's the picture that Peter is getting to here. For us, we need to be watchful because we are in a spiritual battle. The alarm has sounded. The battle lines have been drawn. We are in a battle that won't end until Jesus comes again. And so the exhortation here is be watchful. There's an adversary. He hates you. He has a horrible plan for your life, so be watchful. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, go on standing, do not relax. You are always on duty in the Christian life. You can never relax. There's no such thing as a holiday in the spiritual realm. Friends, spiritually speaking, are you on holiday right now? You're just, you're just taking a break, you know? I'm just not going to pray or read the Bible or go to church. I'm just taking a break. Lloyd-Jones would say, you're in a dangerous spot. You're not being sober-minded. You're not being alert. And you're opening up opportunity for Satan to make a horrible mess of your life. So Peter goes on and he says in verse 9, here's something else you can do. Stand firm. Resist him. Firm in your faith, he says. Resist him. Firm in your faith. What I like about this is the feel of confidence in this exhortation. Resist him. Firm in your faith. He doesn't say run away from him because he's a prowling lion. Cower before him in fear. Beg him not to harm you. That's not what he says. Resist him. Firm in your faith, in your knowledge, in your belief, in trust, in who God is, what he's done for you in Christ, and in the promises of his word. Resist him. You see, the way we need to have a healthy respect about this is to realize that Satan is stronger than you. That's true. But friends, Jesus is stronger than Satan. And if you're a Christian, Jesus is interceding for you. Therefore, in the face of this prowling adversary, you do not have to fear. And you can resist him. And according to James, he adds something to this exhortation. Resist the devil and he will flee. He will flee from you if you resist him, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I noticed an example of this uh, watching the Wizard of Oz um, a while ago. Do you remember when the tornado comes, takes the house up into the sky, and then drops the house directly down on uh, the wicked witch of the east? And Dorothy comes into Munchkinland or whatever it is. There's all those Munchkins there. And she looks, sees her house, and then she sees the two feet of that witch sticking out from underneath the house. The house is falling right on this, this wicked witch. And then there's the good witch of the north is there. And the wicked witch of the west is also there. And the wicked witch of the west is going after Dorothy. And she's saying, you know, I'm going to get you and your little dog too. That's where that line comes in. You know, the wicked witch is, I'm after you, Dorothy. And the good witch of the north says, get out of here. 
you have no power here. You better leave before a house falls on you too. And, you know, the witch starts looking around and, and then off she goes. She flees. You have no power here. The devil can wreak havoc if you let him in your life, but ultimately he has no power over you, Christian. He has no power over you. So resist him when he seeks to tempt you and destroy you, and he will flee from you. And the reason why is because there is something much greater than a house that's fallen on him. The judgment of God has fallen on him through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that leads to our last point. The devil is defeated, friends. The devil is defeated. And so that's why Peter can end this passage in verse 10 by saying, after you've suffered for a little while, Christian, battling with Satan, this God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will restore you, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In other words, the devil's attempts to hate you and to enact this horrible plan in your life and to devour you and destroy you will fail. It cannot succeed because we have this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in eternal glory now, it says there in verse 10. And in verse 11, he is the one who has dominion forever and ever. Why does he have dominion? Because he has overcome the powers of darkness, the powers of death, the powers of sin, and the powers of Satan in his resurrection from the dead. We see this in a couple of places in Scripture. Hebrews 2 says, Therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Since that is the case, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. Jesus partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus has died and is risen to destroy the devil. 1 John 3, 8, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It is true, the devil is prowling around. He, he is active. We still have to deal with him. But nonetheless, Jesus has inflicted the decisive blow upon him in his death and resurrection. And now we're in between this, these two major epochs in history, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We're waiting for that day when he comes again and he'll throw Satan into the lake of fire when he'll be destroyed and eradicated forever. But in the meantime, we have confidence as we respond to his attempts to destroy us. We can say, as the great hymn says, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. It's sure because of the resurrection of Christ. And now we look and long for his second coming to finish the job. So friends, the bad news this morning is the devil hates you and has a horrible plan for your life. <laughs> but the good news is that Jesus loves you. And his love is much stronger than any power of the devil. The devil is real, yes, but Jesus is real also. And he reigns over all the nations. The devil is on the attack, yes, but Jesus 
is interceding for you, protecting you, standing as your advocate before the Father. And the devil is defeated because Jesus lives and will never die again. And what we're going to sing sums this up very well. The great I am, the mountains shake before him, the demons run and flee at the mention of the name King of Majesty. Let's stand and sing this song. God in heaven, thank you so much for the good news of your victory over evil and our enemy, Satan. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.